Whether or not you're on social media, you may have started out this year with some version of hashtag new you. What I'm talking about is our tendency to make New Year's resolutions, and today is January 22nd. So we're just a little more than a week away from the beginning of February, which means if you're like most people, if you haven't given up on your resolutions yet, you're going to in about eight days. According to a study of U.S. News and World Report, by the second week of February, some 80% of those who make resolutions are back where they started, except now they have a kind of remorse staring back at them in the mirror, New Year's disappointment following the New Year's resolution. I guess the problem that we have with becoming a new you is that your resolutions tend to be made with unclear goals or stem from a mindset that actually conceals obstacles or bottlenecks to real personal change. This creates stress that can actually lead to you giving up your resolution rather than keeping it. So from a human perspective, some of us don't make New Year's resolutions at all because they wind up causing us to feel worse than if we made them. But in spite of how we feel, and a group like this tends to break down into some people make resolutions and some people don't make resolutions, despite how you feel about resolutions, the Bible is definitely in favor of serious efforts at personal change. Scripture is positive towards repentance, renewal, and growth. So it shouldn't be surprising then that generally it is in favor of resolutions, but how do we go about making such promises in a biblical manner? Is it possible that the way you're thinking about personal change in your life could negatively impact the way that you're keeping your promises? Today's passage in 1 Peter is all about this idea of a new you. The apostle doesn't explicitly mention New Year's resolutions, He does explain how change happens. It's something that he calls the new birth, and theologians call regeneration. We're going to refer to this idea, though, this morning as the new you, which is the title of my sermon. And Peter gives three essential truths about the new you in our passage. And my hope is that you will not only learn how God wants you to change, but you'll also be inspired to follow through and biblical efforts to maintain and advance those changes. Let's begin by reading God's holy word in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we are are in deep need of change, each and every one of us. 
but we struggle to bring about the changes that we know we need and that we crave. The new you, the new us, is often just out of our reach. So I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us about what you have to say about personal change and give us a vision of the people that you are making us to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Three essential truths about the new you from Scripture this morning. First of all, the passage before us teaches that the new you comes from God. Now we've seen this actually in the last two Sundays in verses 1 and 2 of the text. We won't spend any time there this morning. But verse 1 says that you are elect by God, elected or chosen by God. And that this choice is, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. So the new you comes from God by his sovereign plan, but it also comes in this morning's text because God causes you, in verse 3, to be born again. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You know, no one can bring about birth by himself. You can cause someone else to be born, but you can't cause yourself to be born. It's a little bit like a drowning person trying to save himself by pulling up his own hair, what hair he may have. And the harder you pull, the more you pull, it does no good. In fact, when you're trying to rescue a drowning person, if you're a lifeguard or you've been trained in, in life-saving techniques in the water, you're supposed to come around behind the person. Because not only can't they save themselves, they can also take your life in the process. Explaining the new birth seems simple. We're just talking about birth, and all of us have experienced birth at one point in our lives. For example, I myself was born at a very young age. It's true. Jesus tried to explain the new birth to a highly sophisticated theologian in his day, a man called Nicodemus. But Nicodemus couldn't get it. He just couldn't seem to understand it. He kept asking Jesus, how can someone be born again? How can someone be born again? He's one of the professors that Dr. Ikpa works with. So smart, it almost is too smart for his own good. And Jesus just shook his head at Nicodemus and said, you are a teacher in Israel. You're a professor, a seminary, a theologian. And you need me to explain to you these basic things? You're not born again by crawling back up into your mother's womb, Nicodemus. Come on, can't you get this? It's the Holy Spirit of God. God himself causes you to be born again. The new birth comes from God. It's something that happens to you by the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is in that text in John 3. The Spirit blows wherever it will. You see, the Spirit isn't something you can control. By the way, not only in your new birth, in the moment of your new birth, but all throughout our lives, we find ourselves going to churches and, and arriving at, 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 at workplaces and meeting people that we would have never planned had we been in charge. And thank God for that. The new birth comes from God. The new you is from God. I'm reading, I'm trying, attempting to read, speaking of resolutions, quality books this year. Not just the ones where the, the bad guys and the good guys shoot it out and the good guys win. That's my version of Pulp Fiction. So I'm, I'm trying again to finish the book Moby Dick, and, and Will will be pleased when he hears this. He's teaching downstairs at the moment. But in this amazing book, there's a, there's a scene in which 
a whale's head, and, and the author is quite detailed in the way he describes these things. A whale's head is being stripped of all of its precious oils. And the man who's scooping the oil out of this massive head with the bucket, his name is Tashtigo in the story, accidentally falls inside the whale's head. It's a massive thing. It's like half the size of this room. And so things do not look good for Tashtigo. The rope that he's using to, with the bucket to scoop the oil out breaks and he, he, he falls headfirst into the whale's head, drowning inside the whale's head. And to make matters worse, the rope that the whale's head is, this massive head is hanging from, snaps. And now the whale's head is falling into the ocean. So the man is drowning twice. He's drowning inside the whale's head. And now the whale's head is drowning into the ocean. Things are looking very grim for Tashtigo. But then, Queequeg, the mysterious Queequeg, leaps off of the boat with a knife in his hand like this. He leaps into the ocean and he plunges the knife into the whale's head, tearing it open in a superhuman feat of strength, reaches in to the to the slit that he's created, grabs Tashtigo by the hair of the head, and on board the deck, they cry, there's two, there's two, as they see Queequeg surface from beneath the waters and Tashtigo, the victim that he saved. Well, what does this have to do with the new birth? Well, Melville's uh, wraps up this amazing story by saying this, Queequeg performed obstetrics on the run. Obstetrics is the new birth. Queequeg was a midwife for a dying man because Tashtigo couldn't save himself. Tashtigo was drowning twice. He was drowning inside the whale and drowning in the ocean. And it took a, a feat of superhuman strength to rescue this poor man. Now this is an example, if there ever was one, that you cannot save yourself. The new birth comes from God, not only that because it is caused by God, but it is God that shows us great mercy. You see that in my text. He's caused us to be born again, the text says, according to his great mercy. So this tells us the motivation that God has in saving us is mercy. Now, why do I point this out? It's important to recognize God's motive in saving you because it tells you something about you. You see, if you didn't need saving by someone else, you wouldn't need to be shown mercy. But since the motive of God in saving you is mercy, it shows you why you can't save yourself. And the answer is, and I'm sorry if this is overly negative, you are a sinner. You can't save yourself because you are a sinner. And sinners deserve judgment, not mercy. But the good news of the gospel is that mercy triumphs over judgment. We see this again and again in the Bible. I just want to take one sin as, as an instance. It's one that... I know many of you are quite good at, and I've been practicing this particular sin myself in my married life for coming on 30 years, 
It's the sin of selfishness. Now, selfishness is wrong because it's just mean. I mean, when you're around a selfish person, it seems like everything revolves around that person. Selfishness shows a lack of love, a lack of consideration for another person. When, when someone's selfish, it just seems like they're not even paying attention to you. You might be talking, but it's like your lips are moving and no sound is coming out. Or they might be listening, but as the saying goes, it goes in one ear and out the other. But selfishness isn't sin because it violates other people, though it does. Selfishness is sin because it is a violation against the glory and beauty and majesty of God. So when you're around a a selfish person, it's actually fairly selfish to focus on how bad you feel because of the person's selfishness. I hate to say it, but that's a selfish reaction to selfishness. The first concern about a selfish person is that they're sinning against God. Selfishness is sin because it shuts you out, not just against other people, but primarily it shuts you off from God. Selfishness is sin because you're seeking your honor while refusing or rejecting the honor of God. And selfishness isn't sin just, because, just by affecting a, one part of you. Because it's sin, selfishness impacts your whole being. This is what the fall of Adam has done to the human race. It means our emotions, our intellect, our decisions, our will are entirely corrupted, which isn't to say they're as bad as they could be, but they're wholly bad. You know, if if I offered you a glass of clear water with only one drop of cyanide in it, it's just one, you'd kindly refuse and say, no thank you. Here's how Voss puts it, in every sinful deed, the will, desire, intellect, and emotions work in concert to sin. Have you ever seen a concert? The violins and the cellos and the trumpets and the flutes and then the conductor? This is a concert of sin. Every instrument is playing in tune against the will and the glory of God, which is why you need mercy. This is why the new birth is something that you can't do for yourself. And for me to appeal to you to do something you cannot do is malpractice, pastoral malpractice. You are a sinner and you cannot save yourself. And so the new birth has to come to you. It has to be given to you. You have to receive mercy. You know, the Apostle Paul received mercy. It says, in 1 Timothy 1.13, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. Yet because I had acted in ignorance and unbelief, I was shown mercy. King David received mercy. The first line of the most famous poem of repentance in the Bible, Psalm 51, starts out like this. Have mercy on me, O God, the sinner. And even Peter himself received mercy. When Jesus called Peter to be a disciple, as Luke records it, there's a miraculous catch of fish. 
and Peter, the expert, is being told by Jesus, the rookie, the, the <laughs> guys in the trades don't tell each other how to do their jobs, okay? So the carpenter doesn't tell the fisherman how to fish. But Jesus tells Peter, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And lo and behold, such a large catch of fish, and Peter falls on his knees in the boat and says, get away from me. I am a sinful man. What is he saying there except that there's no saving Peter except by God's mercy. So the new you comes from God. We see this in verses 1, 2, and 3 of our passage. Secondly, second essential truth about the new you, about the new birth from Scripture. Not only does it come from God, but the new you is kept by God. It comes from God and it is kept by God. Now, if you're listening carefully, you can see already we're shining some light on this practice of making resolutions. If I could just comment quickly, if, if the new you, if, if the new birth, if, if the person you want to become comes from God and is kept by God, that should affect the way you think about and make promises, shouldn't it? So it's kept by God. Look at our text in verse 4. He has caused us to be born again, verse 3, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is kept by God because it is a heavenly inheritance. And who dwells in heaven? Heaven is the dwelling place, it's the home, it's the abode of God. Heaven is a place where God is. And if you're a child and you're asking your parents, where is heaven? Mommy or daddy might point up to the heavens and say, heaven is, is up there. And that's true enough for a child, but as you grow and then once you hit your younger years of middle school and high school, you know that you can get in a rocket ship and travel for miles and you'll never get to heaven. Because heaven isn't just up there, it's somewhere else altogether. Heaven is an invisible realm that only God can dwell in and those whom God invites to dwell there. Heaven is a place unlike earth, no matter where you go in the universe, entropy is at work. I used to teach science and entropy is that law of nature, it's an irrefutable law of nature, that things get old and break and die. So no matter what planet you go to, no matter how far up you go, entropy is still at work. Things do not tend towards order on their own. They tend to disintegration and disorder. So things tend to perish. Things tend to become defiled. Things tend to get old and fade. But the new you, the new birth, the person that God has in store for you, the person God is making you to be, is kept in heaven, undefiled, imperishable, and unfading. Unlike the land of Israel, which was the earthly inheritance of old, your inheritance, because it's in heaven, is imperishable, our text says. That means it's indestructible. It cannot be ravaged. In Israel, would was regularly ravaged by invading armies. Typically, as Israel sinned and turned away from God, God permitted the pagan, unbelieving armies to invade the land and to 
cause it to perish. In fact, Jerusalem itself was sacked in 70 AD by Titus's invading armies. And it was set ablaze, and the temple was destroyed and torn down stone by stone. It perished. And not only did Titus cause the city of Jerusalem to perish, the inheritance perish, but he defiled it in the process. It, sp- it was spoiled or ruined because of sin. I eat bananas on my cereal or my oatmeal, and there's a, a point of time when it's just a little too soft to use. And so when something is defiled, it is rotten or spoiled beyond use because of sin. The good news of God, though, is that your inheritance is undefiled. It's kept in heaven. It cannot be ruined by your sin. That's worth repeating and thinking about. The new you is part of an inheritance which cannot be ruined by your sin. It's beyond the reach of the destructive powers of your sin. Which ties into my first point. The new birth is something that God has caused to happen to you. And since he started the process, he will keep it to the end. Paul writes in Philippians something similar. He says, he who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. Unfading is the third description of how your inheritance, how the new you is being kept. To fade means to dry up and to become old and to wither and eventually die. If you turn the page in your Bible over to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, Peter writes about something that fades. He says, all flesh is like grass. 1 Peter 1, 24. And it's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall or fade. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word that is preached to you. I'm preaching the good news when I'm telling you that your inheritance, the person of God's choosing, the one that he has said when he said, you are special to me, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that person is kept in heaven beyond the reach of the molding, corrupting influences of sin. Which only makes sense because it's by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our text says it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I know some of you are old, but none of you were around when Jesus lived, died, and rose again. So all that action, all the, all the action of the story took place long before you entered the scene. Which means that the center of gravity of your, of your identity, of the new you, your inheritance, reaches far back before you existed and goes far into the future in a place that you cannot travel. It's kept by God through the resurrection, which you had nothing to do with, in heaven where you cannot go. But what about the here and now? This brings me to my third point. The new you not only comes from God, this is verses 1 through 3. It's not only kept by God, that's verse 4. Finally, the new you is received by faith. Look at verse 5. 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith, the text says. You're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now we need to do a little instruction here about faith because it's commonly misunderstood and often misused as a term. Now Peter, when he says faith, he's referring to something specific. He's referring to this idea of faith as an instrument. It's an important phrase. When Peter says, you who are being guarded by faith, he's talking about faith as an instrument. Let me explain what that means. Faith is an instrument, as Luther described it, the great reformer, the German reformer of the 16th century. It's like a hand that takes hold of a precious piece of fruit. The eye is on the fruit, and the hand is guided by the eye to grasp the fruit. In this little story that I've just described, the instrument is the hand, but the goal is the fruit. Likewise, faith is an instrument that lays hold of salvation. It's absolutely essential in order to get the fruit that the hand is there to grasp it. But the entire focus of that transaction is the fruit and its enjoyment. So technically, we talk about faith as the instrumental cause of our justification, which is to say salvation, the new you, comes about, the new birth comes about by faith. It's an instrument. If a worried mother and father are praying in the waiting room while a doctor is operating on a poor child with cancer, and then the doctor comes out in his scrubs, with a hopeful look on his face and says, I think we got it. The parents don't praise the scalpel. They praise the surgeon. The scalpel's just an instrument. If you are celebrating the Eagles' victory, as I am, it's not the football that lands in the hands of the receiver. It's the quarterback and the guy that managed to get open that we celebrate. The football in this story is an instrument. Likewise, as I said, the joy is not for the hand that picks the perfectly ripe peach or apple, but the peach or apple itself. You see, the instrument is essential to the process, but not the focus of the process. We might put it this way, Divine sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility, but praise goes to God and not man. This is what I mean by instrument. But faith is not just an instrument in our passage. Notice again what it says. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, faith apparently is necessary not just to start the journey with God, this new you, but it's necessary as a fuel for the journey. So faith here is not just an instrument, but faith is fuel. By this I mean that faith is required each and every step of the way. And some of you got into the Christian faith thinking that all I need to do is believe and then kick back in my easy chair and wait for heaven to come. 
But that is a decidedly bad picture of the faith. And if someone communicated the gospel to you in a way that didn't explain to you that faith is not only the first step of, of the life of a Christian, but every single step of the life of the Christian until Jesus returns or he calls you home, whichever may come first. It's fuel. Look at verse 5. It's through faith that you are kept by God for a glory that is yet to be revealed. So the picture is this. Faith is the mindset that you maintain while you are awaiting the thing that has been promised. So where you sit today listening to this sermon requires faith. And some of you came in this morning running on fumes. And part of my job on behalf of Christ is to call you to faith. To trust Him for one more day. Because there is a salvation that is ready to be revealed. It's ready. Nothing remains. When Jesus lived, died, and rose again, your salvation was complete. If it's possible, He had you on His mind when He cried out, it is finished, declaring all of your sins to be paid for. It is ready to be revealed. When He rose into heaven after those many days on, on earth, following His resurrection, He appeared to James, to the other disciples. And he was seated at the right hand of God. The session of Christ tells us that his work has been finished. It's ready to be revealed. Well, what remains? Well, in the wisdom of God, he has delayed. And so we pray by faith, come Lord Jesus, we pray by faith, help God. I can't bear up under this trouble and this trial. And we're going to see how heavy the weight can be next Sunday as we look at, at the trials that we face. Now, when I was growing up, I was taught, uh, particularly when I lived in uh, cold climates, maybe you were taught this too, in the winter especially, when your car gets to halfway, that's the time to fill up the tank, right, Stasi? First of all, you don't want to leave filling up the tank to the next guy or gal because then they might be running late and then that's not a good situation. But, and this is kind of a guy thing, what if you're stuck on the road in a blizzard and the electricity in your car goes out or whatever? You need to have a half a tank of gas, in other words. The illustration is designed to communicate this. You need to fill up your faith tank before it's empty. And if you're struggling on fumes, it, it says something about the way that you're walking your Christian life. By the way, your attachment to the local church is extremely important here. If this is your home church, maintaining strong ties with your church and that doesn't just mean showing up on Sunday mornings. The, the older Christian saints among us will, will remind you, they'll testify, that the way they've hung in there with the church is by volunteering for a ministry. 
by, by not skipping Sundays when it was inconvenient, by building in the routine into their lives, by being needed. If you're needed here, even if you don't feel like coming here, it helps you to get here. I know it's a little manipulative, but you know, we're thick-headed creatures. We need these sorts of habits. Plus, when you come to a congregation where you're expected, people will ask how you're doing, and they really mean it. Before I conclude, I want to address some common questions I hear about the new you or the new birth, about becoming a Christian. Quickly, one, do I need to know the exact time and date that I experienced the new birth? Well, let me ask answer your question by asking a question, sort of what rabbis do. If the new birth comes from God and is kept by God and is received by faith, do you need to know anything else? It comes from God. It's kept by God. Do you believe that? Do you believe it's for you? That's all you need to know. I'm not sure when you first believed it, I myself believed it about 15 times before I think it stuck, but God knows. Some of you may still be in that sort of spin cycle of, okay, I'm going to really believe it this time. It's kept by God. It comes from God. Believe it. It's true. What about this question? Once I have it, can I lose it? Well, what I usually say here is, if you're worried about it, you aren't going to lose it. Because the very anxiety or worry or fear or or concern that somehow you may be losing your salvation is an indication that God is at work in your life to kick up or to stir up some feelings about renewing your walk of faith with Him. That's almost always the case. In fact, the the unforgivable sin, the so-called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is distinguished by Jesus and Matthew from a blasphemy or a word against the Son of Man. There's something about hardening your heart against the repeated entreaties of the Holy Spirit. Something that, by the way, you can't really ever fully commit until you have no more chance to soften your heart and turn to Christ. So no, once you have it, you can't lose it. Well, the new you, it may sound clever as a hashtag, but it's a lot more difficult to achieve than most people realize. And I think this is in part because Most people don't understand that real change, lasting change, goes beyond superficial life adjustments like workouts or saving money or getting a better job. It's true that ordinary human efforts can mimic the pattern of biblical change. And it's also true that some unbelievers, some atheists and skeptics, seem to, again superficially, model life change better than some Christians do. But ultimately, those efforts are doomed to fail because Jesus told us, if you store up your treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy and thieves break in and steal, you will definitely lose it. But if you store your treasures in heaven in that place that's uncorruptible, undefiled, and unfading, that's the place to keep them because it's kept by God. Ultimately, trying to change in your own power, the Bible compares to something called an arm of flesh. Just just a human arm. 
Jeremiah says this in verse 5 of chapter 7, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Pastor and hymn writer George Duffield wrote this about, which I think summarizes very well what we've been learning this morning about the new you. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. For duty calls or danger be never wanting there. As I conclude, amongst Christians, spiritual or biblical resolutions, some popular ones include quitting some addictive or sinful behavior, improving your personal Bible study or church attendance, or working on or growing in your marriage or other relationship. These resolutions are very, very difficult to keep. So the experts tell us to frame these big, sweeping efforts at change in smaller, bite-sized pieces. So here's some advice to kind of break some of those down for you into smaller bites as you seek to pursue the new you of God's design. Gratitude. Show gratitude, especially when you're faced with delay or disappointments. Seek guidance, not by your feelings or by the opinions of others, but seek to be guided by the Scriptures as they are revealed to you through the Holy Spirit. And third, grade your growth on a curve. This isn't an all-or-nothing project. It's not a now-or-never thing with God. To quote a famous saying, it's about progress, not perfection. What does this mean for your resolutions this year? Resolutions that you either are making or maybe even have already broken. Whether it's addictive, sinful behaviors, church attendance, personal Bible study, relationships, no matter what it is, I think in every case you're going to benefit from honestly acknowledging to God and to another person, another human being, that you need help. That you know that real change begins with God and has to be maintained by God and requires faith and you're struggling to have that faith. Seeking other people who can make this journey of personal change with you. Because after all, the inheritance that you received isn't just for you alone. It's for all of God's people. It's an inheritance that's kept in heaven for every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Christians that have gone before have already entered into their inheritance. And the Christians that are yet to be born, yet to be born again, perhaps by your own witness, will join you in this inheritance someday. So this isn't a solo project. It's a team effort. And we need one another. So let's pursue the new you together. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for how it both challenges and encourages us in the, in the nitty-gritty of our day-to-day lives, in the real spaces and places where we live. We thank you that it's not an abstract word and it's not hard to understand. It is hard to apply, though. So I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would inspire, help, and keep us in these promises which we make to you. And help us, Lord, even to reevaluate our our goals for this year. To make sure that what we're seeking is what would please you. 
and that we're walking in gratitude, guided by your word and not by our feelings, and remembering that we are making progress by your grace, even though we may not have yet have arrived. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.